Have you seen any horses lately? They have horses at this, this here camp? Horses or no horses? Not water horses. Those are hippopotamuses. Oh, hippo, hippi. They have horses at this here camp or no? No? Because that's like the only place you see horses now is at summer camps, places like that. Maybe equestrian neighborhoods, if you live in some place that's a little bit rural. There's horses in the neighborhood I live in, in, in Sunland, California. I'm sorry, beautiful Sunland, California. And I always am struck by their presence. I'm driving my car, and that person is riding a horse. It just feels antiquated. They have a horse on the road, paved road, and they're navigating their horse around a Honda. <laughs> to me, it's just, it's strange that horses still have jobs. Because horses used to be really important. This, this is the sermon, just so you know. Horses used to be a big deal. Horses were not just important, but even necessary for a family to survive, for the function of a farm, for example. They were really a, a great improvement over just human labor. Uh, you no longer had to plow the ground yourself. You could use a horse, and their power and strength was to the advantage of the farmer. And then there came the tractor. And you don't have to give a tractor hay, and a tractor doesn't get old, and when a tractor breaks down, you can fix it. You don't have to turn it into glue. That's just how it goes, horse lovers. Horses were a big deal when it came to war. I mean, in the Bible, it talks about the strength of a king and his mounted horsemen and in soldiers and horses and the cavalry was was a big deal and then there came tanks and tanks can squish horses again not trying to be graphic just talking about progress here and it'd be it'd be something to take a horse to work but horses as transportation are just not that you know i mean on the 405 where i live horses yeah that's that's messy too Experts have been warning us about this for a long time. Not only are horses being replaced by machinery and progress, people are being replaced. People who've written about this or researched it say that in 20 years, maybe half of the jobs that Americans do will be eliminated by machines and robots. They have a name for this. It's called occupational obsolescence. It's basically that your job, the thing that you were paid to do, will be done more efficiently and more affordably by not a person, but a computer or a robot. Think about Amazon drones filling the sky or any number of automated efforts. Occupational obsolescence. It's when a job gets phased out. I mean, there's tons of examples. You don't know any telegraph operators or switchboard operators. You don't know any milkmen. They used to deliver milk to your house. Mysterious. Today, plus, it would be an almond milkman which is really hard for me to understand because almonds are not mammals. <laughs> so I'm thinking about occupational obsolescence and so are you because I'm forcing you to. And the place I want you to look in your Bible tonight is in the book of Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. This whole letter was originally a sermon written to beleaguered believers. They were persecuted. 
They were, some of them had been arrested. Some of them had had their goods confiscated and were thrown into jail simply because they were Christians. You see, in the Roman Empire, being a Christian in certain periods and certain regions was dangerous. To have allegiance to Jesus, to follow him as Lord, to live for Christ meant to suffer under the law. Roman authorities were throwing these people in jail and this pastor who knew them and loved them wrote them uh, a sermon in the form of a letter. And it's not like any other letter in the New Testament. They usually start like letters started in the ancient world. But Hebrews has this amazing beginning that speaks of the superiority of the Son of God in lofty and amazing language. And it doesn't quit. It just keeps going. It's a powerful example of early Christian preaching, but it has a very clear point. It's trying to show these early Christians, most of whom that received this letter had a Jewish background, that they should not turn their backs on Christ. That they should not return to Judaism. You see, returning to Judaism for them would be the easier choice. Judaism was not a persecuted religion like Christianity was at this time. There was a a tenuous kind of truce between Rome and the Israelite powers that be in those days. And though nobody liked being under the thumb of Rome, they weren't being arrested or killed for their faith. But Christians were. And so some of these Christians who had come to have faith in Jesus and profess allegiance to him and be baptized and join the church were beginning to feel the heat of persecution and they were thinking about not following Jesus anymore. They were thinking about returning to their former manner of life, going back to the synagogues. They've been hated on by their families because they had left all the tradition and temple sacrificial systems of Judaism This was such a fabric of their life, and to walk away from all that was socially, familially, really difficult. Now the the government is is coming down on them, and the society is against them, and so they receive this letter trying to help them to press on, help them to endure, help them to not shrink back or drift away, but instead to hang on and keep following Jesus. And it's a letter that's about occupational obsolescence in so many ways because the message of Hebrews is that the old ways, it's not that the old ways in Judaism in the Old Testament were wrong, they were instituted by God. But now at the coming of Jesus, the dawning of God's final word in Christ, the old ways were over. They were canceled out. They were finished. The greatest example of occupational obsolescence of a job being completely phased out is not the milkman or a stagecoach operator or any steamship driver or anything like that. It's the high priest in Israel. And so look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, because though this doesn't sound like something that has immediate relevancy to your life. I don't think any of you are thinking about returning to Judaism since you were probably never there. I do think that maybe you don't have the understanding of Jesus' priestly ministry that you ought to have. And it's gonna offer you something you desperately need as we start to bring this camp to a close and think about life back at home. So let's read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then 
draw near the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the very word of God. Father, use it to help us and to show us our great high priest. In his name, amen. I want to look at these verses in two parts. Two parts, so this isn't a 14-point outline, it's a two-part outline. And I reserve the right to have subpoints just to throw you off. The first thing that we see in verse 14, let's call it the infinite supremacy, the infinite supremacy that causes us to hold fast. The infinite supremacy that causes us to hold fast. I say hold fast because there's two command words in this passage, two things that we're told to do. The first one in verse 14 is to hold fast or hold firmly. And we do that because of something I'll explain to you called his infinite supremacy. The second point, and I'll give it to you up front, is found in verse 16. And it says, let us draw near. And so we'll say, let's draw near because of his intimate sympathy. We will hold fast because of his infinite supremacy. And we will draw near because of his intimate sympathy. So that's where we're going. Let me show you why. Verse 14 starts with the word therefore, which ties us into the context of this whole thing. What he's talked about so far in this sermonic letter is the betterness of Jesus. That the old ways of Judaism were now abrogated or replaced. And it was time to see that God had fully and finally revealed himself in his son. And that this son was someone who was superior to angels and superior to Moses. And every law that came before him was foreshadowing his coming. Every warning that came before him and every act of faith that came before him was in anticipation of him. The way the author says it is in past times, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at Many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so this sermon keeps using a repeated word. It's the word better. It keeps insisting that Jesus is better. Better in every possible way than any other alternative. Better than returning to their former manner of life. Better than the draw of temptation's power. Better than any other object that they could worship better than any other worldview, Jesus is better. And his insistence on the greatness of Jesus is what he's building on. And he's specifically thinking about some things about who Jesus is. One of the main things he's thinking about in this letter is Jesus's work as a high priest. It's why he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, and that's a Hebraic way of saying the same word twice in the original. It's great, great priest or high, high priest. It's like when you read the phrase in Isaiah, God is holy, holy, holy. That's the title given to the high priest in Israel. It was one man who had one job and he had it and he was the only one who had it and it was a very important function. There was lots of priests in the Jewish religion. They were all descendants of, of Levi, of, of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, Moses' brother. And the priestly line did what priests do. And we understand, even if, if we're Protestant, and we are Protestant, punitively Protestant, we understand that priests have a function. They serve between man and and God. And so the priest in Israel did just that. 
He represented the people to God and God to the people. In other words, when he brought a sacrifice, he was bringing it on behalf of the people and on his own behalf because he was part of the people and he was presenting it to God because he was God's representative to the people and so he was this intermediary in between people and God. That's true in pagan religions that have priests. That's true in false religions like Roman Catholicism. The priest functions as some sort of intermediator, as a go-between between God and man. Well, this isn't a a false religion we're talking about here. This is Judaism. This is the religion that God revealed himself to this world through. This is the children of Abraham. This is the entirety of the Old Testament. And the high priest was a big deal. He, He was the one priest who had the most important job in all of Israel. All the priests served in the temple or the tabernacle before that. All the priests were involved in prayer and teaching, instruction, spiritual care for the community. But the high priest had the most significant, most important job of all. On one day a year, a day they called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it was his holy, solemn, sacred, and dangerous responsibility to go into the holy of holies. He would enter into the outer court of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. It was a place where only Israelites were allowed to be. But then on the day of atonement, he would enter into the inner court, a place where only the priests were allowed to be. No other Israelites would have been allowed in the inner court. And on the Day of Atonement, he would go a step further and he would enter into what they called the holy place. Within the holy place was the most holy place and it had the most sacred piece of furniture in the universe, the Ark of the Covenant. It was this uh, amazing box that had angel wings crafted of gold on the top and if you were to see inside the lid, you would know that the, the Ten Commandments, a copy of them were in there to represent God, showing his people how he wanted them to live. Aaron's staff from the time in, in Egypt was there, the, the miraculous staff from the wilderness that budded, and a bowl of manna was there to remind the people of God's provision for them. All inside this box, and this box remained sealed, and this priest was to take in the blood of an offering animal, an animal that was killed. And his job on this one day a year was to go in there following every perfect ritual, and he was in there not just for himself, but on behalf of all the people. And this was obvious by way of his costume. He had a uniform. It included things like a beard that was trimmed in a very particular way, a headdress that was symbolic as well. He wore this jewel-encrusted kind of apron thing called an ephod. It had 12 stones on it, three across and four down, and each one of these precious stones represented one of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. He had two black onyx stones, one on each shoulder, and a a gemsmith, a jeweler, would engrave into each stone the six tribes on this shoulder and six tribes on this shoulder. So in the most obvious way possible, this very important job of high priest was representing the people as he went in to make an offering for their sin on this one day a year that God allowed it. There would have been incense that made the room smoky and reminded them that God's presence was there, thick, and heavy, and he was a holy God. And as he carried in the blood offering, he would sprinkle it all over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, this amazing ritual that was just this very physical reminder that God could not tolerate sin in his presence and that sin required death and that the people were, in a way, substituting this animal on their own behalf. The people had sinned and now they were making a sacrifice that was costly, important, and significant in this ritual. And it was done every Every single day, every single year, on this particular day, only once a year. And the high priest would do it this year, and then the next year, and the next year, until he was dead. And then they would have another high priest. And he would do the ritual as well, until he was dead. And then they would have another high priest, and another high priest. And this took place in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It took place at Shiloh. It took place eventually in a temple that 
Solomon would build, and, and this became the worship of Israel, a constant bloody reminder that God could not tolerate sin in his presence, and that sin required payment. It required atonement, and this was how God said their sin would be forgiven, atoned for, paid for. And the only way they could do this was not by simply asking, but by going through this massive ritual. All that it would cost the people, all the selection, all the, the symbolic ritual that went into it was all ordained very specifically by God. But the author of Hebrews knows all that and now that you're caught up, maybe we can understand what he's saying in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, you see, he calls Jesus a high priest. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was the full and final sacrifice that God would require for sin. He was the Lamb of God is what John the Baptist called him, the one who would take away the sins of the world. And as he died on that cross, he did what no animal could ever do. He accomplished full and final forgiveness on behalf of all of his people. He functioned as a great high priest, so much so that in this great act of communication, God in heaven, when Jesus died on the cross, call, caused the veil in the temple, a wall of separation that kept people out, that kept the priests even out of the holy place to be torn in half, showing that the sacrificial system that God had instituted thousands of years before was never to be used again. It would never be effective again. Again. It would never be effectual again. It was now unnecessary because God had sent his son who died in our place, a perfect sacrifice for sin, and God accepted that perfect holy sacrifice. And Jesus was both sacrifice greater than, been better than any animal sacrifice because he was a perfect man, part of our human race, dying in our place. And he was simultaneously the priest who represented us to God and God to us. And he did this in a infinitely supreme way. And so he is called a great high priest. Remember, there was just one high priest. None of them were considered great, but Jesus is a higher high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the full and final manifestation of a priest. He is the only priest that you will ever need. And I don't know if you think that way about Jesus, but you need to. If you ever talked to a Roman Catholic person and they said, you know, what do you do without a priest? You got a, a pastor or worse, a youth pastor. What is that? And you may, you know, have tended to say, I, I don't need a priest. I have Jesus. Well, you're right and you're wrong. You do need a priest, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest who gets us to God, who gives us access to God. So when Jesus said in John 14 that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, that is high priestly language, that he is the access point to God the Father. God who is holy and cannot tolerate sinners in his presence has made a way for you to be with him through the infinite supremacy of his son. And it says that he is the great high priest, verse 14, look down at it, who has gone through the heavens. Picture the ritual that I described, entering the outer court, then the inner court, and then the holy of holies, and doing that sacred ritual, and then going out from there again. It wasn't a place that was a, a casual hangout spot for the priest in Israel. It was a sacred, solemn place forbidden for them to enter except on this one day. But Jesus did more because Jesus is better. He is one who didn't just enter into the Holy of Holies, a symbolic place that represented the presence of God. He entered into God's real and actual presence. It says he has gone through the heavens. 
Forget a curtain hung in a temple that was torn in half. Jesus didn't walk into a place that symbolized the presence of God. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, gave witness to his followers and disciples, instructed them, and then ascended on high and sits at the right hand of God in heaven, physically, bodily there. Jesus, the God-man, has entered into the very holy presence of God, and God has accepted him there. And the only way you will ever be with God in heaven is if Jesus leads you there. And so he says he's gone through the heavens. Kind of a Bible way of thinking about the place where God is, beyond our sky, beyond the universe, the very presence of God. Jesus is there. Elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says that when Jesus went there, listen to this, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Not only that, was Jesus entering into the actual presence of God, we understand that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. A priest would never dare sit down in the Holy of Holies. He would offer the sacrifice and get out of there fast. There was too many instances in the Old Testament of those who mishandled the worship of God and were struck dead because of God's holiness. Priests didn't sit down in the presence of God, but Jesus did, showing that his work was finished, that his sacrifice had been accepted, that he and only he can be perfectly comfortable in God's presence, that he and only he deserves to be at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is a great high priest who has gone through the heavens so much greater than all these other priests that just foreshadowed that. And this is This is the God-man in the presence of God at the right hand of God. This is his infinite supremacy. And in case you wonder who he is, the text says this. Look at verse 14 at the end. It says, Jesus, the Son of God. It's always important to notice how your Bible talks about the name of Jesus. Sometimes he's called Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ Sometimes he's just called Jesus of Nazareth. In this passage, it's intentionally put this way. Jesus, the Son of God. He's called Jesus because that was his human name. It's the same as the name Joshua. So in the Hebrew world, Jesus' name was Yeshua or Joshua. If there's a Joshua in here, like our, our large and handsome friend Joshua Petrus, he has the same name as Jesus. Whoa. It was an ordinary name. It was a human name. There was tons of Jesuses or Joshuas that lived in Jesus' town. It was a very human name. It meant that God saves. That was the meaning of the name. So if he you know, bought one of those little plaques at a, a store in Santa Fe that like, says what your name means, Jesus's would say, Jesus, God saves. So it was an appropriate name, but it was a very normal name. It was a name chosen by God himself, communicated through the angels to his parents, but his name was Jesus. And so whenever you hear the name Jesus, you need to be thinking about Jesus in his humanity. Jesus as a person, a person who was born physically into this world as a baby, who who grew up and became a a junior high-aged adolescent and eventually was was your age, Jesus. He was a man, and when his mother would call him in from being outside working with his dad or playing with his buddies, Jesus would have had friends. He was an actual person. Jesus would have yelled out of the house, Jesus, come home. And unlike most children, Jesus always obeyed his mom. He would come home. It was his normal human name, Jesus. But this great high priest is not just a man. He's Jesus, the Son of God. 
And herein lies his infinite supremacy that we are going to be holding on to because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Jesus is entirely human and entirely divine. It's why he had the title, the Son of God. And because we have this great, great priest who has gone not through a symbolic ritual, but through the actual heavens into the presence of God, the one who is fully God and fully man, Jesus, the Son of God, truly human and truly divine, we are to respond by, look at the end of the verse, holding firmly to the faith we profess. To hold fast or to hold firm is a favorite expression in Hebrews, and it's used with some regularity. It's a word that you would use to, to mean to grab on to anything, to hold firmly onto something. And we are told for the sake of our persevering, for the sake of our continuing on in our faith. And remember their context was they were being persecuted and they were on the brink of turning their backs on Christ. They were on the brink of recapitulation, of going back to Judaism, back to their former manner of life. And that's something that still occurs today. And though not many Christians come from Judaism and return to Judaism, there are plenty of Christians who go through an experience that we refer to as apostasy, of falling away in a full and final way. And one of the ways that God endures us and works in us so that we will continue to follow Jesus is by warning us in passages like this to hang on to our confession. Hold firmly to the faith we profess. This means that they were to hold on to the gospel that they believed, the message about Christ. He says the same thing to them in chapter three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. This was the basic and most important truths about Jesus. They were supposed to hang on to this truth. Jesus was the object of their faith and he is the object of our faith. And our salvation is indestructible. No one can take you away from being saved. If you are a Christian, God will and promises to finish his work in your life until you are in heaven with him. But many people claim the name of Christ. And many people even enter into the waters of baptism and join churches and grow up in the youth group and be a part of this thing called Christianity. And they look just like y'all, as you say in Texas, y'all. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. It's important. You can't tell the difference between a fake Christian and a real Christian sometimes, but God always can. He has x-ray vision to the heart, and when those people who professed faith, you'll see it more and more as you grow older, walk away from the truth, I know that one of the things we needed to be doing with those people is to remind them of the basic truth of who Jesus is. If you are ever tempted to return to your former manner of life, I would urge you to think upon the person of Jesus. If you know him, you will know his power to save. You will know his matchless character. You will know his compassion. You will know his mercy. And you will know his supremacy that there is nowhere you can go and no one you can worship that compares with his glory and his greatness. And so he urges them to hang on tightly, to hold firmly to the faith that we profess. But he gives them further help. So his infinite personhood, his infinite priesthood is supreme. And we're supposed to hold on to that truth. That Jesus is greater than anything, greater than riches, greater than popularity, greater than treasure, greater than success or health or an easy life. Jesus is better. But he has more for us than just the greatness of Jesus, though that is so, so important. 
In verse 15, he gives us our second point here. And it's that we're to draw near, draw near his intimate sympathy. His intimate sympathy. And I know those are strange words, but I took them out of the Bible, so you just have to work on it. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In what looks like a triple negative here, which is just a, a way of underlining what he's saying, he tells us what we do not have. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's like a triple highlight, triple underline way of saying that we have a high priest, namely Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I wonder if you know that about Jesus. Because it's easy to follow Jesus at camp because we got so much help here. We are force-fed sermons multiple times a day. We have small group leaders watching us like a hawk. We've got Christian friends around. We don't have the energy to sin here. There's too many games and stuff. But you're going home. And I need you to understand what his, Jesus' intimate sympathy means for you. You have a high priest. Someone who represents you to God and God to you. And his name is Jesus. And he is able to sympathize or understand with your weaknesses. And friends, you and I are weak people. Even Christians can be notoriously weak. We could fall into temptation. We can be easily entertained by sinful things. We can be influenced by sinful people. Our minds can wander to impure and inappropriate places. We can do things that dishonor the God that we love and have given our lives to Jesus and still we can be so, so weak. We can fail, can't we? Sometimes big time. So how in the world does Jesus understand our weakness? Because Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Jesus was the, the flawless sacrifice. Jesus never sinned once. When his mom said, Jesus, come home, Jesus was home. And 10,000 other things, acts of obedience that proved his perfect innocence, his perfect obedience. The New Testament says he learned obedience. It was for Jesus a process that went from perfection to perfection because he never sinned. This is why he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's why his life is of the value of all of the lives who trust in him. Because he was the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. So in what way is he able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Because I got tons of weaknesses and I think my tendency is to think that Jesus is not weak. Jesus is awesome. He's infinitely supreme. He's the great, great high priest. He's seated at the right hand of God. He never said anything stupid. He never did anything inappropriate. He never disobeyed his father once. He never said a hurtful word to anyone. He only spoke the truth. He honored God in every possible way. He never broke the Ten Commandments, and we break all ten all the time. Think about the perfection of Jesus. In what way is he weak? He only had one God. He always worshiped the one true God. He never bowed down to idols. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He always and perfectly honored the Sabbath the way God intended, not the way man demanded. 
Jesus perfectly obeyed his parents. I mean, think about that. Some of you have had 18 years of batting like maybe 100. Maybe. Perfectly obeyed his parents, the fifth commandment. According to Jesus' standard, all of us are murderers. We've hated people in our hearts. Jesus never hated anyone with an impure hatred. He never looked at someone and thought, how many times have you looked at somebody and thought, murderers, all of us. Jesus never committed adultery. And you're like, I never committed adultery. I'm single, yo. When I made my kids learn the Ten Commandments uh, when they were little, uh, the Seventh Commandment to them, the way we learned them was hand motions. Uh, the Fifth Commandment is honor your father and your mother. So you learn it by going honor your father and your mother. <laughs> the Seventh Commandment in our little hand motion thing is uh, thou shall not commit adultery. Mom and dad stay together. It's cute, huh? My littlest one used to say thou shall not commit the groceries. That's true too. Thou shall not commit the groceries. We're adulterers because Jesus says if you've looked at someone lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. We've stolen because of our envy for things. We've borne false witness by slandering other people. And we have coveted, desired things that did not belong to us. That's all ten. And we've broken all of them, and Jesus broke none of them. In what way does he sympathize with our weaknesses? Well, the Bible tells us in the following sentence. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin and this is revolutionary i think because of the cults mormons jehovah witnesses false teachers we are quick to defend the deity of jesus because all those groups have a wonky that's a theological word wonky a wonky view of jesus's divinity they deny it they undercut it they diminish it in various ways and it's so important to historic Christian doctrine that Jesus is God. And I think all Christians get that. But I think we have a tendency to underestimate his humanity. And we're not as quick to defend that Jesus was really, truly, and completely a man. I mean, Jesus got sweaty. If Jesus hit his thumb with a hammer, it hurt. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions. And this text goes so far as to say Jesus experienced the full force of temptation's power. Is that how you think about the humanity of Jesus? I'm not sure. I wonder if you think of Jesus more like a superman. Like temptations just bounced off him like Nerf bullets bounce off your siblings. Right? I mean, Jesus, here's a bunch of sin. I mean, think of the ways Jesus was tempted. He would have been tempted in all the ordinary ways teenagers are tempted. Jesus was tempted to an even higher scale, though. Remember when he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil himself? The devil offered him all the domain of the world if he threw himself off the building. Jesus knows he could bounce, fly, or did he? Jesus was fully human and he resisted every temptation that ever was before him. Now you're wondering, why does that make him sympathetic to me? Because I haven't done that. I've given in to temptation. Nod if you've given in to temptation. Okay, if you're not nodding, you're lying, which is giving in to temptation. So you can nod now. <laughs> Jesus never gave in to temptation, yet his sympathy is because he was tempted in every way. Here's how that works. 
Think of any temptation that you have resisted in your life, be it something significant or something insignificant, you were tempted up to a certain point and maybe you held out for an hour or maybe you held out for a night or maybe you held out for three days and as you held out, you felt the pull and draw and power of temptation, but eventually you know what it's like to give into a temptation and you don't know what it would have been like to wait yet another day, another week, or another year because eventually you were not only tempted, you gave into the temptation and you sinned. Now consider Jesus fully human, and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That means that he experienced the full pull and draw of temptation's power. That Jesus had a human nature. That temptation didn't just bounce off of him, but he experienced it in its fullness. But he, unlike us, never gave into it. And so he experienced to it a fuller level than we ever would. Jesus was tempted in, look at what it says, every way. Was Jesus tempted to spend too much time on the internet? or to pull up bad things? No, but if you reduce every temptation, even if it's a, a one that has modern attachments to it, it can be boiled down to lust of the flesh, pride of life, the lust of the eyes. Jesus experienced all of it, and he resisted it perfectly. It's in this way that he is a sympathetic high priest. Teenagers, you have a tendency to sometimes think, and I'm telling you this because I like you, to sometimes think that nobody understands you. I know this. I've been around teenagers for a while now. And for generations, they have thought this way. And I'll give you a, a secret confession. I used to think that way when I was a teenager in the Paleolithic era. I would ride my T-Rex to school and I would think nobody understands what it's like. <laughs> Mom and dad had a brontosaurus, I just got this dumb T-Rex. <laughs> then all the comets came down and stuff. I'm old. We think people don't understand what I'm going through because it's in here, it's in here. They don't know what it's like to be me. They don't understand me. My mom and dad, they don't get it. What this verse helps us to see is that Jesus understands you perfectly. Perfectly. He knows what you're going through. It may be true that your parents don't understand what you're up against. Maybe they don't have the particular kind of temptation that you have faced. But I'm telling you, Jesus understands it better and more fully than you do. Jesus understands you better than you do because he is both your creator God, the one who is divine and all-knowing, and he is fully human, facing the full force of temptation's power, but far beyond any place that any human has ever faced it, and he never gave into it once. Not once in his life did he ever yield to temptation's power. Not once in his life did this holy lamb of God sin. And it wasn't because he was Superman. And it wasn't because he was half God and half man. It was because he was perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient. Dependent on God in prayer. Learning obedience, following the direction and commands of his Father perfectly. This is the sympathetic 
high priestly ministry of Jesus. And this is why I'm telling you, you can draw near to him, the word in verse 16, because of his intimate sympathy. I hope you understand that word sympathy just a little bit. There's no pianos in here because this is a robot piano. It's occupational obsolescence again. Robot piano. But it does make resonance. It makes harmonious sound waves that go out. Music notes. I took piano lessons in third grade. Not since third grade, in third grade. And I quit. Big time. And I probably would have been the world's greatest pianist. Look at these bananas. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Why wouldn't I have been the world's greatest pianist? And I, in a great act of parental hypocrisy, make my kids learn to play the piano. <laughs> but I could not play the piano well for you because I dropped out. I'm a flunky but I could find middle C with a couple tries. <laughs> and if there were two pianos in this room, one over there and one over there, and if I hit middle C on that piano, do you know what would happen? The same note on that piano would gently respond. That's called the Oxford Companion to Music calls it sympathetic resonance. It's that sound wave in its clarity reaches that other string in that piano and it gently responds. Though that piano was never touched, the same note was played. This is how a tuning fork works. Sympathetic Resonance. And I think that is what it's like to have a sympathetic high priest in heaven, Jesus the Son of God. When you are suffering under the force of temptation's power and you sound a note to heaven, you need to understand that the God-man is there at the right hand of God and he doesn't have his arms crossed and his glasses down in his nose looking down at you dirty sinner thinking, gross. He understands. Grown-ups think this way too sometimes. They say nobody would understand an alcoholic but an alcoholic. Nobody would understand my life except somebody who's walked in my shoes. But that is denying the essential nature of what it means to be a fallen human being with a human nature. And Jesus had a human nature like yours. And so when you are tempted, he knows exactly what you are going through. And he looks down at you and he wants you to know he is an intimate, sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize, to understand, to resonate with your weakness because he was tempted in every way just as we are. But here's the massive difference. He was without sin, which is why he is there and his sacrifice was accepted and we are down here being tempted. But the way through our temptation, one of the ways that God has provided a way of escape is that we would know that we have an advocate at heaven's court, one who understands us, one who loves us, one who died for us and for our sins so that we could be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future, and so that he would know and we would know that he is praying for us he is advocating for us. He is a priest who is a go-between between sinful human beings and a perfectly holy God. And he gets us. He understands you. He has felt what you feel. And he wants to have you draw near. 
if your work is to hold firmly to your Christian confession, to hang on to the truth of the gospel that is the message of Jesus, then your second work is to approach or draw near the throne of grace with confidence so that we would receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does it all mean? Well, draw near is a synonym for prayer. You see, as Jesus is a human being, He knows your frailties. He knows your struggles because He's part of the human race. He's not distant. He's not indifferent. He's not aloof. He's intimately acquainted with your weak human condition. He experienced the full range of temptation's power and he understands what you're going through, young person. He has experience. He's familiar with it. And he never surrendered to sin's power, not even once. Weakness, yes. Frailty, yes. Sin, not even once. And what he offers you when you pray to him, when you draw near to him, when you talk to your heavenly Father through the way, the only way of Jesus when you call out to our triune God and ask for Him to help you in temptation, in persecution, in distress, in being a Christian, He is willing to give you what you desperately need. And I love the word He uses here. He is willing to give us mercy to help us find grace and to help us in our time of need. You can Google hints and tips and tricks and advice and find all kinds of stuff about how to have a good life. But here we have the God-man, our great high priest Jesus, offering us help. Don't you want Jesus to help you? I do. Don't you need Jesus' help? In temptation? In your life? In following God? Don't you need Jesus' help? Well, then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And what you will find at the throne of grace, that's where Jesus is. A throne is a place where a king sits, and he certainly is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. So that's a majestic kind of title. And so that throne is a glorious throne, a royal throne. It's, it's where Jesus is with God in heaven. And so when you're praying, you're praying to God who is there on this glorious throne. You are speaking in the name of the Son of God and He is glorious. He's on a throne. He has all ability, all power, all authority, and all strength. And that should make us nervous if that's all it was. He's kingly, He's sovereign, He's awesome, He's majestic. How dare I enter into His throne room. How dare I, I even talk to a God like that? But remember that God made himself known through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he is a sympathetic high priest. He is one who welcomes you to that throne. He's telling you to draw near. He's telling you to approach, to come, to pray, to speak to him, to call out to him, to cry out to him. And you can do it because it's not just a throne. It is a throne of grace, a gracious throne which means Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus is a savior. Jesus offers you the forgiveness that you desperately need. So draw near to the throne of grace. How do you do it? With confidence. The way that you would enter a place you know you're welcome. You wouldn't enter the Queen of England's court with confidence. You'd feel nervous because you're into the royal wedding and stuff and you got your big hat on or whatever. You would feel nervous entering an important person's palace or mansion or to meet a celebrity would make you feel nervous. And this is not like that. 
though this person is infinitely greater than any other human person. You should be able to enter his presence in prayer with confidence or boldness. Sometimes I I travel to go talk to people somewhere from the Bible. That's a weird way to say that. I don't do it very often because I don't get invited very often. And because I don't like to go anywhere or do anything. It's on my resume. But when I do, and especially when the kids were littler, our our kids are two years apart. Uh, They were two, four, six, and eight. Now they're older than that. Don't quiz me right now. It's a birthday month. It's hard. They're still two years apart. My oldest is 12. My youngest is eight. Look, I know. But when they were two, four, six, and eight, they were really sweet. Still sweet, kids. Very sweet. And when I would go out of town, the best part was coming home. If they picked me up from the Van Nuys, fly away, I could get down like this, and I could, two, four, six, eight, I could lift them all up. And they were so happy that dad was home. And there was never a question in their minds if I was wondering or willing to pick them up and hug and embrace them. They didn't come up to me How was your trip, Father? (laughs) I go, kids, they go, Dad, we go, yay! That's what this is like, except he's a way better father. And he loves you more than anyone could ever love you, and he proved it when he killed his own son for you. And so it says, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And when we get there, you know what we find? We receive mercy. We find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, Jesus' throne is available to you. So you ought to call out to him. In your temptation, in your deepest need, when you don't know what else to do, when we're months away from this experience, you have, as a Christian, access to Jesus on his glorious and gracious throne. This verse is showing us that the infinite supremacy of Jesus meets his intimate sympathy in our holding on to him and our drawing near to him and he will always be available to you. He will always be unfathomably kind to you if you have put your faith in him. Young Christian, know this. You are welcome at his throne and he will never grow tired of your requests. He will never be annoyed with your presence. He lives to pray for you, to be accessible to you. He wants you to come to him over and over and over again. He doesn't need you to be perfect to come. He knows you. He is the perfect one. And when you come to him, you will never, not find judgment and condemnation. He dealt with that at the cross. You will not find apathy or indifference or rejection. He is there for you, offering you mercy and forgiveness. You will find grace and strength, exactly what you need. He doesn't need your performance or your rituals or proof or validation. He just wants you to come to him, to draw near to him, to call out to him, to come to where he is and he promises he will never cast you out. So Christian, come. Come again and again and again and again and again and you will find Christ's pardon and sympathy and welcome and forgiveness and mercy and grace and help. Don't hide from him. Come to him. Draw near to him. He is ready for you to draw near and there is nothing you've done that surprises him. He already knows it all. He knows you will need him. 
He knows you will fail again, sin again. You cannot pray enough, believe enough, try hard enough. All the mistakes you've made, every bad thing you've ever thought, you need to come boldly to that throne and find grace and mercy and help exactly what we need. So won't you come to this infinitely supreme high priest who knows us with intimate sympathy? Won't you come boldly and find mercy and get grace? And if you'll draw near to him, you will not fail to end up where he is. He will see to it in the end. Father, thank you for Jesus, our glorious God, our infinitely supreme high priest who understands us and loves us and prays for us and invites us to draw near. We thank you for him and his glory and him and his sympathy. May every young person in this room put their faith in Jesus and know there is no other way to live. And may they, in their faith, always be holding fast to Jesus and always drawing near to him. We thank you, God, for our great high priest.